So, some of the questions that we're receiving recently have to do with parking. Is there enough parking at the theater? And the answer is absolutely yes. So, you can drive up this back alley and you can drop off your passengers right here and you can enter the theater from the back side and then park your car right here. Since this entrance comes right next to the stage, we're gonna have to close that door at five minutes before each gathering, the nine o'clock and the 11. So if you're late, you're gonna need to walk around the block and enter into the front of the theater. If parking were the Black Plague, this would be Europe. If parking were cool kids, this would be the Axiom. If parking were an elephant, this would be like a huge one on steroids, magnified. Parking for days, parking for months. Let me show you the park. Great, so I wanna challenge you to park out here in this parking lot and save the closest spots for those who need um, the shorter distance to walk. You just gotta walk a block. That's all we need you to do. Walk a block to the theater. That could be a slogan. We could make t-shirts. Walk a block. It could be our thing. Let's walk a block. Let's walk a block. Let's walk a block. Essentially, we want to emphasize that there is plenty of parking, the surface streets and two big lots behind the church. So we hope that you don't worry about having a place to park your car. There we go. Technically incredibly gifted is what I am. <laughs> I hope that you'll come in the front of the theater because we've done a lot of work on the front of the theater and we'll continue to this week. Um, and that's where the kids check-in will be. And that's where the kids' classrooms are for the little kids. So front of the theater is ideal. Most of the parking's in the back. However, uh, there also is an entire city block uh, on which the church sits or the theater sits, and there's only one business that's even open on Sunday morning. So we've got two huge lots, plus a city block, and there's just plenty of room to park. So uh, excited to um, experience that with all of you. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan. I'm so glad you're here. This is the last time we're gathering here, so uh, it's, big. it's big. Yeah, so we're going to spend a little bit of time remembering and some time thanking God for this place because it has certainly been a gift for us. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We'll hand one to you. Uh, I'm going to be looking at a story in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. The page numbers are in your sermon notes. So I encourage you to look there. Also, if you're seated on an aisle and there's a basket under your seat, looks like they're on the outside today over here. Go ahead and pass the basket down. If you're new with us today, welcome. I hope you have a great experience with us this morning. I hope you're challenged. I hope you're encouraged. You're welcome to take a card, pass along your contact information if you would like to. Uh, that will enable us to stay in touch, especially over the next couple weeks as a lot of things are changing in terms of times and places. Um, we will not be here next week. We'll set up like an A-frame out in the parking lot or something like that. Hope to get the message out. We've been talking about it for about 10 weeks. So this is our last gathering here. And then let's see, we did Bibles. Yes, good. All right. Well, friends, this is a, this is a season of Lent. And Lent is a season of, uh, you guys need some seats back there? You could? Could we scoot to the middle if you are able? We've got still more folks and we are out of chairs. So, um, so if you squeeze to the middle, we'll be able to offer hospitality to those who stand. Good. 
Lent is a time of letting go. Friends, Lent is a time of intentionally simplifying. Lent is a season where we, we focus on our need for a Savior. We don't want to walk right into Easter and just sort of stumble into the reality that we've been rescued from sin and death. No, we need to take a, sp- a period of time to prepare for it. And so in an effort to kind of lead us in this direction for our sermons this season, I've been focusing on the topic of change. Uh, on one level, on a corporate level, a big community level, obviously, we're in a season of change. There probably hasn't been a, a season of, of this pronounced sort of planned change in a long time with us. Um, today's our last day at, at this location, and that's a really big deal. That's a, re- that's a really big deal because we've, we've met here, we've gathered here for worship for more than a decade. Uh, there are many children in this congregation for whom this has been church, and this is the only thing that's been church for their whole lives, right? And, and it's significant. We've had a lot of experiences here that have become meaningful for us. We've, we've made friends here. We've served here. We've set up and we've torn down here so many times. In fact, this is our 625th gathering. About uh, 80 were at another's at First Street School, and every rest, the rest of them have been here. So this is a big deal. We've made a lot of memories here. But today is more than just about leaving this place. It's also about transitioning into another place. That's another thing we want to talk about. Many of you, in fact, most of you have in the last few years, you've joined us in praying for a new place. We've actually prayed together that God would provide a place for us. And in the last few months, most of you have given, you've sacrificed financially to support the purchase of the theater that we, that we were able to get in downtown. It's been many months of anticipating this change, and now we're at this, we're stepping off point. Uh, In a few minutes, we're going to tear everything down, we're going to move out of the rental, and we're going to move into our first house that that we've bought. That's what's going to happen, right? And so on a very literal, very physical level, as a community, we are right in the middle of significant change. And, And of course, we're celebrating that. But here, there's a deeper hope, friends. There's a deeper hope. And that is that, that, that this is more than just a change of address, that is, that, is, that this change taking place would, would be more than just uh, something that shows up on our financial statement, whereas instead of paying rent to the school district, we're now paying down a mortgage. I am desperately hoping that we are changing. I am desperately praying that we are a people who are becoming the people that God wants us to be to occupy this key strategic place in downtown, that our hearts are changing, that our souls are changing. That this big move to the theater would just literally would be like an outward expression of the bigger thing, the deeper work that God's doing in us and wants to continue to do through us. In fact, to be blunt, I'm counting on the fact that the fact that we were simply almost given this theater is a sign of God's desire to be with us and to continue to work in and through us. I'm counting on that. And so... Um, I I decided to focus this Lent on change, yes, because our church is changing in some big public ways, but also because I'm praying that we are changing, friends. I'm praying that we are growing, that we are becoming, that we are being shaped individually and as a community, together, that we are wrestling honestly and faithfully more and more with what it means to follow Jesus in a world that is constantly changing. Changing. So I titled, I titled the series Change Is, and we've been walking around this topic of change for several weeks, looking at different thoughts and offering reflections on different dynamics uh, related to change. First, we said that change is constant. This is the way it is. It is always the way it is. Things are constantly changing all of the time. Only God. Only God. Okay? 
It's the only thing. Only God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything else changes. We root our confidence, our security, our stability in anything else. We're, we're basically just on a collision course for a, a, a massive uh, disappointment because only God remains the same. And then we looked at this biblical pattern of leaving something in order to receive the next that God has for us. We talk about how change is needed. In order to receive, we often have to leave something. Even a good thing sometimes has to be surrendered in order to receive the good thing that God has for us. And then last week we considered whether or not change is good. And, and we kind of landed on change is complicated, isn't it? Uh, so we can count on that because we can count on it being complicated because even though change continues to happen, God is with us in our change and God is good. So we can count on that. Change can be complicated, but God is good and he is with us in that change. So today I want to share a few thoughts about impending change, on change that is just about to happen. I titled the message, Change is Coming. And this specifically is what I want to consider together this morning, this question. How can we faithfully anticipate change? In other words, what should we do in the face of impending change? Or how should we respond to the knowledge that change is right around the corner? When change is forecast, when we know it's coming, and we have this unusual experience of actually seeing it ahead of time, how do we anticipate the coming change in a way that is faithful? Uh, most of the time, change comes with very little or no warning, right? Uh, and the, cha the challenge in these kinds of situations is just about navigating the change that's, that's happening. It's, it's already happening. It's, it's already begun to happen. In other words, most of the time, this is the way it happens. Change takes place, and then we have to just learn in the midst of change to navigate it. It's like, have you ever fallen into a river? Anybody ever slipped into a river? Suddenly you're there, it's moving, and you have to figure out what, how to navigate that. You have to just start swimming. Most of the time, that's the way uh, change works. I remember where I was sitting on the edge of our bed in Three Lakes, Wisconsin, 20 years ago almost, when my wife came out of the bathroom and showed me, for the very first time, a positive pregnancy test. <laughs> right? Does anybody remember where you were when you saw one of those for the first time? Okay? Yeah, good. Right. So this is the way it... it t now... Change had already happened. Change was already underway. The challenge was now for Nathan to navigate the change that was not expected, but was, it was happening, right? It was, it was, it was underway. Uh, so change had already happened. Most of the time, that's how it works, because most of the time we don't know about change until it has already begun to take place. But sometimes, and I'm talking about the sometimes today, sometimes, not often, but sometimes, we, we find out that change is coming, we get the word that it's just around the corner. It's a very unusual kind of uh, opportunity, right? Change is on its way, and we get notice ahead of time. We get to anticipate the change. Maybe it's your company, and you hear they're laying off a bunch of people at the end of the year. And you don't know either way if you're on that list. So the next day you go to work, because nothing has changed but you know something's going to change, change is coming, and you get to anticipate that. You get to figure out how to deal with that. Or somebody told me this week that their daughter just got engaged to be married. So currently things are basically the same, but change is coming, right? And now the family is navigating how to, how, how to anticipate 
the change that is to come. Some of you have parents who are slowing down. Currently, they can live by themselves. They're all right. But you know change is coming, and you get to anticipate that, that coming change. Or there are several families in our church who are in the process of adopting children, and out of the blue, they'll get a phone call. And it'll be, you've been matched with the child, right? And, and so they go to bed, and in a sense, nothing has changed. Nothing is different. They just know something that they did not previously know. What do they know? They know that change is coming. And now they are, they are presented with the opportunity to anticipate in a way that is right, in a way that honors God, in a way that is Christian, this coming change. Most of the time, change just happens. We have to respond to it like falling into a river. But sometimes we find ourselves in this really interesting place of anticipating change. So my question this morning is simply this. How do we do that faithfully? How do we do that in a way? How do we anticipate? What do we do? How do we live into that space of knowing that change is coming in a way that is Christian, in a way that honors God? I want to encourage you to write this down. Maybe you're thinking about something. Maybe God has enabled you through some way to, you know something's around the corner. I want to encourage you to write that down because this, this teaching will be way more helpful to you if you can apply it to something specific. Maybe you know something's around the corner. Write down a word or a phrase of something that you think is about to change. And if you don't know of anything personally, then just consider the fact that you're a part of a church community that's about to change. There's a whole lot of things that are in the process of changing. And think about how might I engage in what my church is going through in a way that is faithful, in a way that is good and honoring to God. So together I want to look and learn and be reminded um, about ways that people, people in, the, in, the, in the Bible have faithfully embraced change. There's so many stories we can look at. Uh, many of you might want to make a, uh, a deeper study of this. You could become an expert in anticipating change in a way that is right, in a way that is biblical. Let's just look at two stories, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament today. I put the page numbers here on the screen, also in your notes. There's a book in the Bible, early in the Bible, called Numbers. It's kind of a history of the uh, first few years of the people of Israel after slavery. We'll be in chapter 13. Here's the context, all right? Here's the context of what we're about to read. Israel, the people of Israel, have come out of slavery where they've been for 400 years, and they came out of Egypt about a year ago. For about a year, they've been camping in the wilderness. They've been moving around, and just about every story you have heard about Israel in the wilderness happens in the first year. Ten Commandments, they get those in the first year. They start receiving manna from heaven, this food in the first year. They get tired of that. God gives them quail instead. The whole hitting the rock, water coming out. Most of the stories you've heard about the Exodus happen in the first year. Um, and then in chapter 13, they finally arrive at the border of the land that God has previously promised to give them. Now, some of you know the answer to this question. How long did Israel wander in the wilderness before they entered the promised land? 40 years. But they're looking at it after one year. Okay? So, this story is the one that explains the 39-year delay that they get to experience. All right? Here it is. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, get this, which I am giving you, giving the Israelites. Uh, from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So Moses sends 12 spies into Canaan, 
and they check out this land for 40 days. And then they return with reports about the city, about the soil, about the trees, and it is amazing. They bring back a single, get this, a single cluster of grapes that is so huge and heavy that two, two of the guys have to carry it on a pole between them. This is an amazing place. And the spies give this report to Moses. This is now forward to verse 27 of chapter 13. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Not exactly sure what that means, but it's good. Okay, it's good. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. These are these super tall people, like think professional basketball players, 240 pounds, big guys. Then Caleb, he's, in, he's another one of the 12, so most of the spies say that. Caleb is one of the other 12 spies. And he silenced the people before Moses and he said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with Caleb said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread, get this, among the Israelites, a bad report about the land they had explored. It's a false story, right? They said the land we explored devours the people living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim, sort of almost like half people, half God, strange creatures. We seem like grasshoppers in their eyes. They looked, we, and, and we looked the same to them. Chapter 14, verse 1. All night the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses. He's the leader. Aaron, that's the priest, the assistant. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness... Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So if we back out of this story for a minute, take the transferable principles here, but, but uh, think about it more generally. The, the primary, the most common response of those anticipating the change moving into this promised land is fear. I missed verse 4. They want to elect a new leader. They want to go back to Egypt. They're driven by fear. They're consumed by it. We can't do it. We're not strong enough. We don't have the resources. They're bigger than, than we are. It's too complicated. The challenge is too great. We don't have the, the resources that we need. It'll be different. Gosh, I just, let's just go back. All these excuses, objections, reasons, but underneath all it, it's just fear. It's just fear disguised as pseudo-rational thinking. Right? Nobody thinks the land is bad. It is undeniably good. But they, they, they feed this false story. Ten out of the twelve spies give an inaccurate report. They paint an unfavorable picture of Canaan to influence the community away from what God wants to give to these people. Why do they do that? Because of fear. They're afraid. They're afraid. And this is easy to imagine, I think. Uh, change is coming. It's daunting. Much of it is unknown. Some of what is known is intimidating. And so the anticipation of the change is characterized by fear. Moses himself experienced this just a couple years earlier when God told him, leave your home and go to Egypt and free the slaves. 
I don't know if you remember the story, but Moses is like, who am I? And what am I supposed to tell him? He experiences the same kind. Fear is totally understandable, but this is really important that you hear this. When we allow fear, friends, to hold us back from stepping faithfully, stepping into, stepping up to the change that is to come, we effectively deny one of the core truths of the Bible, which is that God is with us. And we reject the ramification of that truth, which is that we don't have to be afraid. Okay? In fact, one of the most common things that God says all through the Bible is don't be afraid. So the core truth, God is with you. What does that mean? What, what difference does that make? You don't have to be afraid. And furthermore, we don't have to be driven by fear. And furthermore, when we are driven by fear, the results are almost always tragic. For example, the young sort of soon-to-be father who is bound to experience some kind of fear or, or uh, concern about the news of, of a coming change of having a baby, but he should not be driven by that fear. Clearly, it is his responsibility to take the challenge, right? To do it afraid if that's what it takes, but certainly to do it, to abandon the change to come. Because of fear, it would be tragic for him and it would, be, it would just be devastatingly tragic for others, right? What's really sad about the majority of Israel's response to the anticipated change here in this story is that God has already told them that he's given them the land. He's already told them. It's a done deal. They just have to take it. They just have to receive it. It has been provided. They're so daunted by the imagined cost of taking the land that fueled by fear, they actually want to go do the very opposite of take it. They want to elect a different leader. They want to go back to being slaves in Egypt. Can you imagine this? Right? Here is the land I'm going to give you. Here is the land I have given you. Take it. No thanks, God. We'd rather be slaves than to walk into this land that you have provided. I mean, it sounds almost ridiculous, but um, it's not entirely different from what we choose to do when we run from instead of run into change that is coming. When news of a coming change sends us backwards instead of mo motivating us forward. Isn't it interesting that you don't stay neutral? Isn't it interesting when challenged to move forward, you can't stay neutral? You either accept the invitation and you go forward, or in rejecting it, you go backward. You go the wrong way. You go the opposite direction of, uh, of faith. And that's a tragic response. You contrast the way the majority of Israel anticipates change with the perspective of Moses and Aaron and the two slaves, Joshua and Caleb. This is what happens in verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron, they fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. That's a sign of repentance. Like, I'm, I'm grieving. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Right? They've been told it's not, but it is exceedingly good. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Core truth, Lord is with them. Ramification, you don't have to be afraid. But they are afraid 
and they do rebel against God in their fear, which leads to this tragic result that instead of entering the promised land after one year of wandering, the community of Israel that is currently there is kept from entering the promised land at all. Ever. They never go. They stand across the street from it, and that's as close as they get. God says, verse 32, As for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last day, until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, in case you want to know why, right? You will suffer for your sins, and you will know what it is like to have me against you. Oh. So this is one story where the people get the message of coming change before it actually happens, and the story dramatically reveals the wrong way to anticipate change is to be moved by fear. Contrast that with the right way to, be, to live in anticipation of change, which is to be motivated by faith. There's a little T-chart on the back of your notes. I encourage you to fill it in here. Here's two really practical differences between the people who are motivated by fear and the people who are motivated by faith. One practical difference is that the fearful people are focusing on their own lack of power, right? Their own limited power. But the faithful respond to the same challenge by focusing on God's power. It's the same challenge, the same kind of people. One is not stronger than the other. The faithful simply recognize it's not about my power, so it doesn't matter if I have very little because I'm not focused on my power. I'm focused on the power of God. So this is a really practical difference. A second practical difference between the fearful and the faithful is that the fearful act according to what they want. They don't like the proposition of going into this land. They change the story. They try to persuade the community according to what they want to support their position while the faithful act according to what God reveals he wants. Right? And this is what Joshua and Caleb point out. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into the land. It's very different focus. Uh, that looks like way too much sacrifice will be demanded of me to go there. So I'm going to try to persuade other people not to do that because I don't want to do that. That's one perspective. The other is, you know what? It doesn't really matter what I want because God has revealed his will. So that feeds the faithful, right? I think it's really important to see that the news of change challenges both those who respond in fear, and those who respond in faith. Do you get that? Both are challenged. It's not like this is easy for Joshua and Caleb. It's not. They just have a different focus, and it changes their whole approach. All right, All right now let's look at a story in the New Testament. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, so the New Testament starts with four stories about the life and teachings of Jesus. Matthew's the first, Mark, second, and then Luke is the third. It's on page 714 in those red Bibles. One more story about, um, and from the New Testament. Again, there are many options we could look at. I want to look at Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. She provides this powerful example of how to faithfully anticipate change. Luke introduces us to Mary 
after already talking about another miraculous pregnancy that has taken place. And so we drop into this story in verse 26 of chapter 1, and this is what it says. Luke writes, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, it's John the Baptist's mom, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged or um, engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, descendant of David, that's King David, way from the Old Testament. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Of course, right? The angel said what? Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. I think it's interesting. We don't often think of Mary as somebody who is afraid. But it's because she didn't respond in fear. But it's not because she didn't experience fear. She just didn't respond in fear. She apparently does experience some degree of fear, as you would expect if you were addressed by a supernatural being by name. right? Luke writes that she was greatly troubled. I looked into the Greek. It's not phobos. It's not the word that's typically... Uh, um, translated fear, it's a different word, which in the original language carries this idea of being disturbed or rattled. We might say something like, she was shaken up, okay? She was shaken, to, she had to sit down. We might say something like that. But then Gabriel continues to address Mary, and he says, of course, don't be afraid. And here he does use the more traditional word phobos, don't be fearful, Mary, and then Gabriel announces the change that is to come. Here it is. You will conceive. You're going to give birth to a son. Call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, or his ancestor King David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants. Those are the people of Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. You need to note that Gabriel is dropping serious names in this announcement. He is showing you who he is and who he's got connections to. He's dropping names in order to communicate the magnitude of the change that's about to take place. It's not just, oh, by the way, you're going to be pregnant. It's you're going to be pregnant uh, uh, with and you're going to carry the Messiah of the world, like the Savior of the world, right? And Mary's initial response to the news is a question. How will this be? Mary asked, since I'm a virgin. Fair question. Angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One, that's huge, to be born will be called a son or the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her own her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And then finally, we hear Mary's admirable response. And friends, this is the reason that the church fathers call Mary the ideal disciple. It's because of what she says right here, right now. Ready? Here it is. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Literally, she says, I am God's doula. That's what she says right here. I exist in this place to serve God. That is it. That's who I am, and that's why I have life. 
I am here to serve the Lord. May your word be to me, your word to me be fulfilled. I mean, it is so powerful. It is so challenging and so admirable. Notice two things about the way that Mary responds to the news of coming change. First, continue in that T-chart. Do you see that humble submission in her? Every word Mary says communicates humble submission. Even her question to Gabriel the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? It contrasts sharply with the response earlier in the chapter, which we didn't read, where John the Baptist's father is told about a similarly miraculous pregnancy, and his response is, how can I be sure of this? Right? It's totally different. Mary has a believing response. How will this be? And then she says, I'm the Lord's servant. I'm the doula of God. Hey, Mary, your entire life is about to get turned upside down and changed. Whatever you say, you're the boss, right? You're the boss, whatever you want. No selfish ambition, no protecting her own plan. None of this, you know, I'm not really sure if this change works with my family very well. Joseph and I, we got a big wedding planned. I'm pregnant. Not gonna, don't want that here, right? It's none of that. It's just, I am in. I am yours. Whatever you say. I've noticed this pattern. Maybe you've seen it too. Humble people roll with life's changes more gracefully than prideful people. Have you seen that? I have friends who lost their home when a lot of people were losing their home a few years ago in the recession and everybody's houses were foreclosing. It was super hard for her. She was devastated by it. And I met with them, and I felt like, man, this would devastate me. They put all this time into this house, saved, 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 and now they're, it's gone, right? And, and he, the husband, he said something that, was, that stuck with me. He said, you know, I'm disappointed, but I've been poor my whole life. I can live poor. They're going to move back with the in-laws. He's like, you know what? I can live poor. I know how to live poor. And, and I just thought, man... What a marked difference in the response of the proud versus the response of the humble when they hear change is coming. The humble have the ability to hold life so loosely. It doesn't mean they don't care. It just means they know they're not in charge. In contrast, pride often shows up as this sort of sense of entitlement. Like, I deserve this. Uh, this isn't going to change. But I, I want to say that we can nurture, all of us can nurture in ourselves a very practical humility every time we hear about news that is news of coming change by saying with Mary, I'm the Lord's servant. I belong to God. I know that no matter what is coming, I serve the Lord. Right. And then finally, and perhaps most remarkably, Mary responds to the news of coming change by worshiping God. That's her response. Mary, your whole life's going to get changed, and she, and she worships God. We won't take time to read it, but the next section in Luke is what's called the Magnificat. It's a famous song that Mary sings, and it's all about praising God. It's all about worshiping God in response to this news. So she hears the news that her whole life's about to change, and she anticipates that coming change. How? By worshiping the Lord. This is the ideal response for the disciple of Christ. This is admirable. What do you think is the response that is the opposite of worship? 
I'd suggest it's something like rebellion. And it's a response that we see a lot in the, li- in, the, in the pages of Scripture, and I would say we see it even more in our own lives. I mean, how many times have you heard about change that is to come, and you thought, oh, heck no, that is not going to happen to me. I'm not in for that. You can just count me out of that. If that's what's going to happen, you go have your great time. But I refuse to step into that as though you have control of, of your life, right? I'm out of here. If that's the future of what's happening here, I'm gone, right? I want to I gently invite you to consider that there's a bit of entitlement and pride in that response, right? So in summary, I don't know what changes are coming in your life. Uh, maybe you have a sense of what's coming up in your life. I do know that as a community, we're going to be experiencing some change. And of course, not everything is changing, right? Our vision is the same. Our heart is the same. But there will be lots of little changes, and there will be a few big ones. For instance, we're meeting somewhere else. We're walking into a building next week in which none of us will feel at home. You feel more comfortable now here than you will there next week. It's just new. It's just the way it is. Like when you get a new house and you fall asleep that first night and you're like, I feel like I'm in somebody else's house. I feel like I'm in the Kaufman's house. That's where I bought my house from. That's weird. I don't even feel at home. I don't know if I like that, right? It won't feel like our house. And I imagine for some of us, it will be really, really challenging. There will be things that you just don't like as much, and it will be challenging. I want to challenge all of us. I want to challenge myself to anticipate whatever changes God has for our church in a way that honors God. Two ways we can anticipate coming change, friends. Two ways. We can anticipate coming change in fear. We can anticipate coming change in faith. What does that look like? If your focus is on your power and the lack of it, if you're thinking a lot about what you want, what makes you comfortable, your personal preferences, if your attitude, to be honest, slips into, I kind of feel entitled for this. If your action is one of, Mm -mm. you're kind of lining up with fear. And, and, And I don't, the reason that matters is you don't have to be afraid. That's the gospel, right? You don't have to live there. The other side, man, if you're focusing on God's power, if you're focusing on God's will, if your attitude is one of humility, because it's not about you and it's not about me, If you're responding to the things that you hear by just worshiping God, it's not burying your head. It's putting yourself in the right position in which you were created to exist. You are worshiping God no matter what comes. What is your focus, friends? What is your attitude? What is your action? What are you doing? Man, may God give us the grace to anticipate change with faith. Amen? Amen. I invited uh, Nick to come and join me up here to close. Um, we just want to take a minute, thanks, to, um, to thank God for this space. When we were provided this space in 2006, it was as big of a thank you God as this theater feels to us now. This was, this was fantastic. And we have grown and, and uh, appreciated this place in, our, in so many ways. So uh, we want to thank God for that. you have anything to add to that? Well, you mentioned... It will be in a second. You mentioned that uh, 
some of our kids have grown up and this is right. all they've known of church. That's right. my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, even as you asked me to, to pray, I thought I'm going to cry and I, and I am. I'm a crier. Um, but the, uh, we have four kids and this is what, when we say we're going to church, it means we're going to Foskett Ranch Elementary School. Mm-hmm. And they're going to they're going to run through those doors and they're going to go right for the food table and they're going to hear us behind them saying, one thing, one thing, you know. And they're going to, they're going to kick a ball against the wall outside and with friends that they've made here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And we as adults, we can say, oh, we understand the, that church is, it's not a place, it's not a building, but... Um, but there's this tension in the Bible where it is. There is this sacred sense of space. And this has been that space for, for 11 years. And so let's, let's thank God for this sacred space. God, um, you are so good. You're so good for what you've done uh, in this church, in this community, and in, in this place, in this cafeteria. God, we think about friendships that have been formed here. We think about the first time we met someone in this room and, and a friendship that grew from that time. And we're thankful for that. God, we think about all of the, the formational things that have happened in our, in our lives, in our spiritual lives, in the spiritual lives of our kids and our friends and our, uh, our, our families here. You have been so good. Yes. God, I think about my kids in the, in the staff room or in the library or in a classroom. And, and everything they've, they've learned and the friendships they've made and the, the songs they've sung. And, and the crafts they've, they've brought home. And even though they, they quickly end up in the trash there there's this sense of some real significance there and so we thank you thank you amen 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 Amen. thanks nick Good. Would you stand up with me one last time in this place? We want to greet those around us and extend peace to one another. If you're new here today, I hope that you feel embraced into this place and by this people. And uh, I encourage you, friends, to, um, to share what you appreciate and have appreciated about this space in the next couple minutes. And then we'll come back together. I have a really important thing to share with you about what's happening next week. Um, so may the peace of Christ be always with you. Thanks. Take a minute, greet one another with the peace.